Okay, tonight is October 6th. We uh, have a message that is going to be called Making the Father Known. And uh, this is going to be the first part of a series that will cover the entire book of John. When I was in Lafayette, one of the most uh, enriching things that I did, not only for the people there, but for me personally, was to commit to teach the book of John. And I began that and worked all the way through the New Testament. I'm not sure that we will work all the way through the New Testament, but it's occurred to me that almost everything that I preach on Sunday mornings is totally based on the Old Testament. And that's because we're generally way out of balance in our New Testament churches and don't know the Old Testament, and I feel an obligation to do that. But the reality is, coming from the perspective of Gentiles like we do, if you don't understand the New Testament when you get to the Old, you, you just really have to have a good, firm grasp on it. So I don't want to neglect teaching the New Testament. And um, that's not because they're separate books or anything else. It's just that the New Testament's like the cliff notes for the rest of the Bible. And if you read the cliff notes of a book and understand all the main themes and then you go back and read it in detail, it seems to make more sense to you. But I want to encourage you that with John, the reason I picked John He's different than all of the other Gospels. There's a lot of things in his life, too, that I can personally relate to and that you may not have looked at things this way before. The only thing that is difficult about the book of John is beginning it because the first chapter is pretty hard to get out of. And the reason that it's hard to get out of is because he is incredibly simplistic and yet incredibly profound in his simplistic speech. It it is unbelievable. I personally, I believe that the book of John is the most perfect book that has ever been written. Most, most perfect letter that has ever been penned. I don't think there's anything that comes close to it as far as substance uh, anywhere else. I love Paul's epistles. I love the rest of the Bible. But the Gospel of John to me is just the crowning masterpiece of, uh, of, of the Bible. And some things that you need to know. The stated purpose for the book of John. By the way, does anybody know what John means? Yahweh is gracious. I mean, that's Yahweh is good, Yahweh is merciful, Yahweh is gracious is what it means. So when you see somebody named John, that's, they're saying that God had been gracious to them in giving them that child. That's what John means. Uh, the stated purpose for John, as, at least as the book states it, you may draw some other main themes, but the stated purpose for the book of John is in the 20th chapter. So if you turn to John 20 with me really quickly... We'll see a real straightforward, hard-hitting, right-to-the-point reason for writing the book. You're supposed to put, if you write a thesis, you're supposed to put in the first chapter what you intend to prove. You know, you don't always come right out and say that, but you usually list the things that you intend to make very clear in the paper, and then you reinforce them in each paragraph. You're going to see this done in many ways, but the clearest explanation that John gives in his book for why he wrote this is in the 31st verse of the 20th chapter. We'll start in 30 though. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote, you can go back to John 1, John wrote this book not just so that you would believe that Jesus is who he said he was, not just to show you that uh, Jesus was an anointed man, that he was a prophet, that he was a king, 
that Jesus did miracles. He wrote it for the stated purpose of you understanding that Jesus was the Son of God and that by believing that He was the Son of God, you might find life in His name. And this is important because what is generally left out of the Gospel message today is the life in His name. It's become some kind of churchy hyperbole. We think it's all just poetic speech that means that you live a nice life or something. It is not it at all. We're going to find out that John begins both 1 John and the book of John in the same way that Moses began the book of Genesis. In the same way that, uh, that the Bible starts, John starts. And there's a reason for it. There's a problem that entered mankind that you've heard me teach about probably at nauseum, you might say, in Genesis, and it's that death entered the world. So the book of John begins with reflections to the book of Genesis. He begins speaking about the creation and he begins talking about the death problem. But understand that before John, there were 4,000 years of human history and Jews understood that the problem that came on mankind as the result of sin was death and that it needed a life solution. So the reason I'm telling you this is what we just read in John 20, verse 31, said that, and by believing you might have life in His name. That was not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. That was literally, you might leave the power of death and enter the power of life. This is why we find later in John also the statements. In Christ you have crossed from death to life. It's why you see those things more clearly said than anywhere else. Because John is writing to the entire Christian world. He's not just writing to Jews. He's not just uh, writing to a select group of people in a certain area. His book was written to believers worldwide. It's different for many reasons. And as you read it, I encourage you to pick up on this, not so that you'll be a Bible scholar, not so that you'll be able to brag to your friends around a water cooler, but so that you'll appreciate what is said. He puts things, for instance, in Roman time as opposed to Jewish time. Why might that be important to you? Well, not only does it not match up with other Gospels, and that's that it, you need to understand that so that it doesn't contradict, but it's important because the rest of the world outside of Judea was on Roman time. And through the inspiration that he had, in some way the Holy Spirit emphasized to him a need to record things in Roman time so that when we were reading it, we'd understand it. Now, I tell you what a crazy, confused time we live in. About half the scholars say that sometimes he used Roman time, other times he didn't. Sometimes they say he used Jewish time, but he's just in disagreement with the other authors. I've researched this thoroughly now for about 11 years, and a year or two ago, I don't remember how long, uh, we hit it on the head. And we, I know exactly what it is, and I'm excited to say for the first time in my life as we teach the book of John, I'll show you in every instance, he's in Roman time, and why, and how, and what it means. Aside from him being in Roman time and this being written to believers worldwide, it's clear from looking at the Senate structure, looking at the way the man thinks, that it was Hebraic thought. So everything that I tell you about Hebraic roots and stuff is still true, still applies to John, but he chose to write it in Greek. Why might he have done that? Because 300 years before Jesus, Alexander had forced the world to speak Greek. Then the Romans came in under four generals underneath Alexander and they built roads all over the world. So God raised up this man and we're going to look at a little bit about his life before we get into this book. Raised up this man who had a unique perspective 
on his relationship with Jesus. He had a unique relationship with Jesus because he would be the one that would write the letter that was addressed to the entire world. It would go out in the common language of the people, even though it expressed Hebraic thought, and it would reach the corners of the world. And it has. Do you know how far we are from Jerusalem? (laughs) You know, I mean, it has. About John. John was uh, born around A.D. 10. Think about that. What does that make him to Jesus? When was Jesus born? Somewhere around A.D. 0, right? There was no A.D. 0, but you understand what I mean. And the year of our Lord. I mean, we count our years from the date of his birth. So if John was, was born in 10, what does that mean he was than John, to, John, or to Jesus? He was 10 years younger. Boy, that's interesting, isn't it? If Jesus was about 33 when he was killed, what does that make John? About 23 years old. Now, understand when we give these dates, there's a plus and minus on them, but what is pretty certain is that he's in his mid-twenties. Okay? The wall chart in the back of our church, you can look at this and you'll see it says he was born around the year 10. Some scholars would say other things, but most, everybody agrees he was half Peter's age. Okay? That sheds some real light on the relationship later, so it's good to know this background. Also, John goes down in this book as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, let me ask you something. If you were carting around the country with 12 guys, and one of them was half the age of the others, and he had some real unique personal characteristics that kind of drew you to him, you can see how he got kind of under Jesus' wing, huh? He was moldable. Now, I know from first-hand experience, I have watched God will invest in a young man Not that he doesn't invest in the older, but he will invest in a young man because there are many years of labor coming. And he'll take his time with that young man, teaching him, molding him, because it means fruitful service for the kingdom of God. Well, John was around 23 during Jesus' uh, ministry on earth. He died under a man named Trajan. And Trajan was a a Roman emperor that, uh, as far as Rome is concerned, did good things. But... There's a problem with Trajan, and that is that Trajan had control of the 10th legion during a certain war where he gained distinction. Did anybody have any idea? It occurred somewhere around AD 70. He was part of the uh, people that put down the Jewish uprising. So what did he not, uh, not care for? <laughs> Jews. And uh, John died under Trajan. You know, it, it's in, now, there are many stories about John that we won't go into that today, and they're all extra-biblical, but they're, they're fun to read. You know, John was supposed to have been dropped in boiling oil, but they couldn't kill him. You know? John wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos where he was making, he was on an island where they made Roman gods. They cut them out of stone, and he, and he wrote the most powerful uh, apocalyptic book in the New Testament. You know, I mean, he's full of, of John is somebody who is full of I don't want to say contradiction because he was not conflicted, but at the same time, you see some things about him that seem to be glaringly opposed to others. For instance, John, we know him as an old man, as the apostle of love. The apostle of love. It's said that in Ephesus, when he was an old man, barely could see, and was uh, discipling a young man, Polycarp, that he would lean on his staff. And by the way, there are historical records of Polycarp and Irenaeus and some of these other guys that were supposed to have been descendant from John, Polycarp who sat and talked with him and gave eyewitness testimony about these things, and they're now part of our early church fathers. I don't get really into that. I mean, you might. I haven't found a lot of worth in 
studying our early church fathers. I've got volumes of books by Philip Schaff on it if you want to read them. For the most part, you know, it seems the century after the apostles uh, left the earth that uh, the church started to go downhill. And uh, it's where we get our Romanism. But in any case, he's the apostle of love leaning on a staff and they would say, they would stand up there and say, Brother John, you know, Father John, teach us something. Teach us something. You walked with Jesus. And he'd stand up and say, Brothers, love one another. Now, why would I say that's a contradiction? Because when this guy was in his mid-twenties and he was walking the earth with Jesus, do you remember what he was known as? Son of Boanerges, meaning thunder. Mark records this. And this is the young man that had a brother. Do you remember what his brother's name was? James. And these two brothers walked into a town with Jesus and said, Lord, you want to call down fire on him? Jesus said, hey, you don't know what spirit you're of when you say that. These were the two guys that... I have a feeling if you messed with one, you got both. You know, Everybody went to at least junior high with a uh, group of guys like this. They didn't earn the name Sons of Thunder, though I may be reading too much into that. They didn't earn that because they were pacifists, I don't think. You know, These were men. And yet, when they encountered the Christ, their life began to change. So that what they were known as, Sons of Thunder, was enveloped in the Apostle of Love. And that is really the story of all Christians. The dying of your old life and the raising of your new life. So for that reason, I can relate to this this young man. He's the only one at the trial and at the cross out of all the apostles. Isn't that remarkable? Y'all all saw the movie Passion of Christ. We saw it at my house. John was not only at the cross where he was entrusted with Mary... By the way, now Mary wasn't in, I mean, she wasn't taking care of John. John was taking care of Mary. You know, Jesus instructed John to do that. And teaching the book of John would be totally different now that I'm not in the state of Louisiana. It ought to be interesting. We'll have different points of emphasis. But he was also the only one at the trial. Do you remember anybody know why he was at the trial? He was known to the high priest. See, John came from a prominent family. And I. I don't know in what way he was known to the high priest. We may explore that later. I just don't remember at the moment. And I don't believe the Scripture comes right out and says. But Caiaphas knew who he was. And he was able to slip into the courtyard because of that. So he was at the trial of Jesus and he was at the cross of Jesus. This gave him a unique perspective. John's testimony was unlike any other. So we're going to pick up in the book of John and... with verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a mouthful in and of itself. <laughs> Go ahead, Bessie. She's excited. Hey, Pop, have a seat over there. And I hadn't told y'all I'm really excited to have my father here with me. Don't you apologize. As I get older, maintaining the perfection of my human shell will require a little more maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) Papa, I'd rather you sleep before church than during, so I certainly understand. It'll be all right. That might earn you distinction in this crowd. (laughs) The only one not sleeping during. I'm teasing, y'all. In the beginning was the Word that we are in uh, chapter 1 of John. And uh, it's page 1176. 
says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, I told you this book was written for the purpose of declaring that Jesus was the Son of God and that by believing in Jesus, you might have life. So why does he start here? Well, he starts here because Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He does the same thing in his first epistle. In his first epistle, he begins with creation language because he wants to set out from the very beginning to explain something. From the very beginning, John wants you to understand Jesus has been a part of the creation since before there was a creation. Now, I just said something that the Scripture doesn't say. Did you catch that? He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I said, before there was a beginning. That's because in, in my reading, a guy named Spiros Zadhades wrote several chapters on this, and he's a learned scholar. And what he, his uh, supposition is, is that after reading this and understanding Greek and all the languages he does, the way that he does, what the authors really, what the first century reader would have gotten from this is not from the first play of the game he was there. What he's trying to say is before the game, before the field was set, he was there. The, uh, an easier translation, although it wouldn't be as literal, would be before there was a beginning, there was the Word and there was God. He's trying to say at the point that began time, as you know it, He was already there. That's what He's trying to say. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He's being as thorough as He possibly can be to let you know that Jesus was a part of this from the beginning. But I skipped over something that we probably ought not skip over. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why are we going through this whole language of Word? Why, why not just say Jesus? See, what we're going to get to here later is He's going to say, And the Word became flesh. What is a Word? If I say uh, guitar... I just pointed to something. But if I say the word guitar, what immediately happens to you? An image comes to mind. If I string together words, what's the qualification for putting a period after it? What, is, what do my string of words have to have in order to get punctuation behind them? Subject, a verb. But what does a sentence have to do to be a sentence? Express a complete thought. So, when God was expressing Himself, not, not with a typewriter, but when God was expressing Himself, the very manifestation of God's thoughts, the expression of God's thoughts, is Jesus. It is the Word. That's going to be a theme. In fact, something that if you're taking notes, that will be the whole point tonight, is John 1, verse 18. Now, don't read it yet. That's where we're going. But you remember the title was Making the Father Known? As much as the mission statement of the book of John, he said, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing in Him you might have life. The way he goes about doing that is making you understand Jesus' relationship to the Father. And the relationship begins like this. First off, I want you to know there's always been God and the expression of God's thoughts. His Word. That, that's, that, and he says, and the two are equal. 
says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They're together. And the Word was God. Then he goes on to say, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, I know I'm being repetitious. I've been watching all the political debates and, you know, they're repetitious and it's rubbing off on me. John 20, verse 31. What was the reason for writing the book? That you might believe that Jesus was the Son of God and in believing in Him, you might have life. See, everybody, every Jew for sure, but everybody in the world has a common problem. And that is that we die. As I was listening to Mandy give a back school today, she began to speak about degenerative spine disease. And what you really find out when you look at degenerative spine disease is it's not really a disease. I mean, it's not a disease any more than any other process of aging is. It can be sped up and it can be slowed down. This degeneration that we have is the process of death working in us. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this, you will surely die. He didn't say you will surely become dead. You know, the moment you eat of this, you're dead. He said, you will surely die. And the truth is, mankind has been decaying every since. Now, you see this in various ways, as Mandy was describing it today, certain behaviors speed up and slow down this process in your intervertebral disc, where the creation itself bears witness about God. As much as your behavior, repetitive motion, might change something in your disc, the rest of your body is affected by other things. Your spiritual health is affected by things and your physical health is uh, affected by things. But all of us are in a process of degeneration and this has been a problem. John was written so that you would believe and in believing, you might have a way to reverse this process. That you would find life instead of death. So when he starts here and he says, hey, by the way, a word's expression of thought before there was a beginning, before there ever, any of this ever started, I want you to know there was God and there was God's thoughts. And the, the two of them were the same. And then he goes into everything that was made was made through God and His Word. Now he says, in Him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Now, before we get into John, I want, I'm scared that this whole light and darkness thing gets lost. We've heard, uh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, the song. We've heard, uh, let your light so shine before men. All of these churchy kind of things. Listen to what this says. He tells you that light and life are the same thing here. He says, uh, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Now, this is obviously figurative language, right? If he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, he's not literally talking about Jesus walking around with a flashlight, is he? No. Life was meant to illuminate something to men. The light shines in the darkness, or the life shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We're going to see something about the word understand here, and I try not to get too complex with this. In English, have you ever heard the expression, let's say uh, I was teaching Judah math, and I would say, son, two plus two is four. And he said, okay. He said, and two plus three is five. 
He said, okay. Said, and two plus four is, and I wait, and he answers it. And I, if he says six, I say, see, he gets it. He sees it. Not literally meaning that he sees the six on the page, but you see it, you understand it, you get it. Well, when he says the darkness has not understood it, one way to translate that is the darkness had not overcome it. Another way to translate it is the darkness has not understood it. Obviously, the NIV chose that. Or comprehended it. See, Jesus showed up to be not just light, not to illuminate things, but the very life for people on earth. He showed up for the reason of bringing us who are in a degenerative state, life. But it, it wasn't understood. It wasn't comprehended. And that's important because as we get through John, you're going to see why. Now, one of the things that was promised before Jesus would come, and we started in the beginning of creation, we started with the death problem and the fact that everything that is on the earth, Jesus had a part in making. And we have moved right on to the predecessor to Jesus. And this is because the Jews were promised a predecessor to Jesus. Somebody who would come in the spirit of Elijah. Somebody who would come and warn them that the Messiah was coming so that they wouldn't miss it. For 1,600 years, they had been performing uh, rituals like the Passover. For 1,600 years, this had happened. Some 1,700 before the book of John was written. And then a man came named John. Not the same author of this book. This would be the guy that the other Gospels called John the Baptizer or John the Evangelist or John, God forbid, the Baptist. <laughs> and what would happen is this guy would stand on the shore with people listening to him everywhere and it's amazing that they were drawn to John but not drawn to Jesus. And Discovery Channel and these people that have to come up with outlandish ideas to get you to watch that are so far outside of the mainstream, you don't know what to do, but they are at least interesting. Make much of this. They, they create a rivalry between John the baptizer and Jesus. It's evident from the Scripture there's no rivalry. It's man's natural inclination. They ran out to see John because of his message. He had a short ministry. It was six months at best. And do you know what his message was? Behold, the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. His whole goal in life was to point the way to Jesus. We'll cover some of that a little bit later, so I don't want to get too far into it, but do you know how anti-normal that is? You know, in the vice presidential debates, you hear these guys promoting their boss, the president, right? But outside of some political structure, and make no mistake about it, they benefit from promoting their boss. That's how they get their positions. Outside of that, it's not usually one person's goal in life to promote someone else. That's not usually their calling. It's not. So when these guys look at their relationship, when these secular scholars look at their relationship, they can't take it for what the Bible says. They have to read into it the kind of emotions they would have and they have a jealousy, a discord, and a rivalry, even though there's no evidence for that. Otherwise, it would be convicting to them. So there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Or everywhere you see the word light here, you can use life so that through Him all men might believe. He Himself was not the light or the life. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light or life that gives light or life to every man was coming into the world. Now, are you all understanding why I'm saying light or life? He said in the very beginning, Jesus was life and that life was the light to men. 
So don't get the idea that this is some kind of candle in the darkness. Jesus came for one purpose. The reason He starts with creation language in the very beginning is so that your mind will go back to the Genesis account. You will remember, wow, in the very beginning, the way we got in the shape we're in is mankind sinned and brought death. And this guy who was the Word of God showed up with life. But the life was not understood. It wasn't comprehended. We're going to find out in John 5 and in John 6 and in John 7. Jesus says things like, I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. He says, you search the Scriptures day and night thinking that by them you have life, but you refuse to come to Me that I might give you life. All these and it's consistent all the way through John. But if you don't read carefully, you don't pick that up. And so it looks like a new thought. In fact, you'll find some scholars that will say this was a change. God, this is so absurd, it's hard to say. That this was a change in Jesus' approach because His initial evangelism was not, was not working. When the book of John starts off from the very beginning with this in mind, and the reason I'm working to lay this foundation now is it's the only possible way to understand some of the statements Jesus makes in John 6. It's the only way. But we're not in John 6 and it'll be a while before we get there. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. Now, did the man, the human being, Jesus, make the world? No, he really didn't. He was born from Mary. That was the beginning of the shell, if you will. But the very thoughts and word of God, the expression of God has been there since the very beginning. And he's going to go on down to say that that is what indwelled. That, that very expression of God's thoughts became the man Jesus. How should they have recognized the Maker, though? By the attributes of Jesus. This is why He said things like, don't believe me unless I do the things my Father does. And He said, by the way, I only say and do what I hear my Father say and do. So that they would recognize God by His Word in the man Jesus. By the expression of God's thoughts coming through Jesus. They would recognize Him for who He was. But John's clear that they didn't. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Before I get to this next point here, you've heard it said that we're all children of God, right? Hey, Paul even quoted Epimedes and some other excuse me, Greek poets in the book of Acts and in other places, and said, you're all God's offspring. So how do you reconcile that? Is the Bible contradicting itself? How do some get the right to become children of God, and you read that here, by believing in Jesus, and others, we're, we're told, in a general sense, all mankind is the offspring of God. How do you reconcile that? God's responsible for everything on the planet. But when a child acts like his father, what do we say about it? Always oh, a chip off the old block, huh? You know, you can have a son or a daughter that is nothing like you, that you can't relate to at all. You're still responsible for them being there, but nobody would ever recognize them as your children. 
By the same token, you can be an adopted son. But act so much like your father that everybody goes, wow, that's a P-Row over there. You know, that is this thought that is being conveyed. All mankind was the offspring of God. But not all mankind embraced God. Not all mankind sought a relationship with God. When man became estranged from God through sin, only some elected to stay children. This is how you explain that Jesus is going to look at Pharisees later in this very same book and say, you say you have Abraham as your father, but your father is the devil. Say, so, well, you know, how on earth could that be? I thought we were all children of God. You are all born by God in the sense that He began all of this with, two men, with a man and a woman, two people. Yeah, two humans, that's what I was trying to say. And He set that in motion. And you are the progenitry of Adam. But you don't all act like God. Psalms 82 is very, very clear. God called all of Israel little gods, His kids. He said, but you're going to die like regular human beings because you don't act like me. And He listed the things that they did that didn't act like Him. So what is very clear in the Scripture that again, we don't have time to teach tonight, but as we get into it in John, especially around John 10, I will teach it, is in a biblical sense, while we're all the offspring of God, you're only declared to be His child if you embrace Him. Otherwise, we've been emancipated by sin. We've chosen a different father. John testifies concerning... I'm sorry, verse 14 is what we want. The whole thought here has been that the Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that there's not been anything that was done without the Word, and that the Word has shown up and people didn't recognize it, even though there was a predecessor named John the Baptist who pointed to the Word. And then he's going to go ahead... I mean, it was almost an aside. You could, in fact, let's read it like this. Watch. Start in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Skip down to verse 14. Watch how much sense this makes. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You see how you can read that with absolutely no break? The rest was an explanation of recent events. But he's picking back up with his thought here. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Uh, what does it say in your footnote by one and only? I can't read mine. The only begotten. That's how King James used to say it. What does only begotten mean to you? We've just established that God has more than one child, right? Adam's called the Son of God. Ezekiel's called the Son of God. So how could he be how could Jesus, the Word who became flesh, be called the one and only, or the only begotten Son? This is this is an, and it's not a translation problem, it's an understanding problem. But I mean translation always has something to do with it. Why does one say only begotten and the other say the one and only? Of all the children of God, this is a special child. And you know what's special about him? He is the expression of God's thoughts. That's what, when you look at Jesus, you are looking at a mirror image of God. That's, that's what we're, Jesus is making the Father known. That's what we're talking about tonight. So when it says God, the one and only, He's the one Son who is the substance of God. The rest of us are made in His image. 
You know, we're, we're built after the same pattern. God's got three parts. We've got three parts. God's got emotions. We have emotions. That might surprise some of you. The Bible describes God as having emotions. You know, there is a word for angry use that the best translation I could think of would be a slang word speaking of God sometimes. You know? Uh, yeah, Matt's the only one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> God, we are made in His image, but Jesus was more than His image. His every action represented the character of God. Now, I hope to represent some of the character of God. I've been made to participate, Peter said, in His nature. But Jesus was His very nature. We're going to look at that. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has surpassed Me because He was before Me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is our whole text this evening. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. Usually when you think of seeing, what do you think of? Looking with your eyeballs, right? I've never seen a unicorn. Okay? But then he goes on and says, but God the one and only, Jesus the Christ, is making Him known. So are we talking about seeing with our eyes or are we talking about understanding and comprehending? Well, the hint was earlier in the chapter. He said, that life showed up. He was the light to all the men. But the darkness didn't understand it. In other words, they didn't get it. It wasn't that they didn't see Him. They saw Him walking around. They didn't understand it. Why did Jesus come? He came so that you would understand the Father. He says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Here's what it is. God is a great big God. His ways, the Bible teaches, are beyond us. So He packaged Himself in something that was understandable to us so that you might know more about God. This is when... Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, after being with you so long, do you still not understand? Philip says, show us the Father and that would be enough for us. He says, Philip, when you look at me, you're looking at the Father. Now, Jesus was not the Father. He does not claim to be the Father. He is the expression of God in human form. He is the way that you who have never understood God suddenly can understand God. I was thinking about the best way to explain this and I remembered that my friend in this book said it better than I could. So this is, uh, Was Christ God? A Defense of the Deity of Christ by Spiros Zodhades. Listen to what he says. Uh, there's a palace in Rome that he's speaking about and it's, uh, and I'm going to butcher these names, Guido Reni's famous fresco, The Aurora, a work unequaled in that period of nobility, of line and poetry of color. It is painted on a lofty ceiling, and as you stand on the pavement and look up at it, your neck stiffens, your head grows dizzy, and figures become hazy and indistinct. Therefore, the owner of the palace has placed a broad mirror near the floor. In it, the picture is reflected so you can sit down and study the wonderful work in comfort. 
Jesus Christ does just that for us when we try to get some notion of God. He's a mirror of the deity. He is the express image of God's purpose. Unlike the Sistine Chapel, this aurora work was a vast canvas on the ceiling. It was a fresco that was on the ceiling. But the problem is the ceiling was not high enough for you to get far enough from it to be able to comprehend it all. So when you stood, if you were trying to take in a whole painting on this ceiling and you looked up, it was overwhelming. And as you began to try to stare at it to take it in, it became dizzy and you couldn't grasp it all. So what the owner of the palace did was he put mirrors all over the floor so that you could sit in one place and stare at the whole thing without having to lay on the ground and look up and without having to get dizzy. This is not all that unlike what God did. He began revealing Himself to mankind from the beginning, from the garden, but it soon became evident to everybody that there was a general misconception about God. Sin had clouded man's judgment. It had caused a dizziness when trying to understand God. The Bible declares that God is everywhere. David said you could go into the depths and He'd be there. You could go into the heights and He would be there. The Bible declares that God is everywhere. So, it'd be kind of like trying to understand the oceans on the earth. I should have brought a globe in tonight. Where on the earth can you stand and see all of the oceans? You can't. Even if you got in the space shuttle. My father was teaching me the other night that space starts some 60 miles from the surface of the earth. You could get 60 miles from the surface of the earth in a space shuttle, which is some 330 miles above the surface of the earth in its orbital atmosphere. And look, and you still can't take in all of the oceans on the earth. Why not? Some are on the backside. So when you're trying to understand God that is everywhere, how do you do that? Same way you would the oceans. You build an aquarium. You take representative pieces of that ocean and you put it in something, some container that you can begin to comprehend. Jesus is like taking a man who is empty and filling him with the fullness of God so that when you look at this man, you're seeing what represents God. Now, I'm not making that up. That comes from the writings. Let's look at Hebrews. From John, you'll want to hang a right. And we're going to be in Hebrews 1, which begins on about page 1330. And it says, uh, I'll give you all a second to get there. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. How interesting, huh? He starts off with the exact same claim that John does. This is to avoid you thinking that Jesus was a man who achieved God-like status. This is to avoid you thinking of Jesus like they do Siddhartha or somebody else, somebody who worked so hard that they achieved some divine state. Now, he's saying that he was shown to or appointed to be heir, but he had been with God and made the universe through because he's the expression of God. And verse 3 is how he sums it up. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Then he goes on to teach about Jesus providing purification. Turn to Colossians. You'll hang a left from here. 
pages are sticking together. I'm not sure yet. Turn to page 1308. Easy way to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians in the Bible is General Electric Power Company. It's an acronym that will help. Now, Paul wrote the book of Colossians and this is something else that is important. Sometimes when people are trying to look at the Bible from a, a worldly point of view, they look at the different characters in the Bible, and as I said earlier about John the Baptist and Jesus, they try to put them at odds with one another. They try to put upon them carnal thoughts and concepts. Uh, you know, the latest one, this uh, Da Vinci deception thing that is out, has got Jesus sleeping with Mary Magdalene. Now, that's, that's an old lie. We've been hearing about that from the Mormons for a long time. We've heard about that from other places. That's not much more than projection. Uh, you know, that's not much more than the person who is writing it, had he been in that position, probably would have. But we were dealing about, the, about a, a guy that was the very expression of God's thoughts. He didn't, I assure you, and the Bible's very clear about that. Having said that, something that is important in these books is, you'll notice when Paul writes and John writes, although these two men had very little contact with each other, uh, in some ways, their ministries were totally diverse from each other, and they even butted heads on occasion, if you consider that John was a part of the Jerusalem Council. Their writings are in perfect agreement with each other, though they might not have read each other's writings at the time. Okay? One of the things that shows inerrancy in the Bible, in my opinion, is a perfectly woven thread through the whole book that you see, even when it's written by 44 different people on six different continents over a period of 1,800 years. You see common threads through the whole book. Listen to how Paul says this. It's in uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross." Stay in Colossians for a second. I just read you a whole bunch and I know that and it's easy to get lost in it. The theme here is that from the very beginning there was the expression of God's thoughts. At some point, the expression of God's thoughts took form in a human being. Now, this was not an afterthought. It was promised from the first uh, man and woman forward. It was told to Eve. The expression of God's thoughts took on or tabernacled in a human body. That human body came to present life to the world, but most of the world didn't understand it and didn't comprehend it. He had a forerunner who came and pointed to that same thing about him. Look, here's the Lamb of God. He's come to take away your sin. And still, most didn't. But John is quick to point out those that did became children of God. And Jesus was the only Son of God 
that is this unique, only begotten, one who is the substance of God, he came for one purpose, so that the world might be able to comprehend or understand God. He came to make him known. So John wrote the book for the purpose of you believing he's who he said he is and finding life. Now Paul picks up on that same thing. The writer of Hebrews says uh, he's the radiance and exact representation of God. The writer of Colossians says he is the image of the invisible God. How can you have an image of something that's invisible? I mean, how do you do that? See, this is the same thing when the Bible says that the Word became flesh. The only way you have the image of something that's invisible is if there's some intangible quality about it that's being expressed in a tangible way. God was beyond your grasp. He was beyond your ability to understand. So He caused Himself, His thoughts, to appear in a human being so that you could talk to Him, so that you could touch Him, so that you could see Him, uh, His emotions. So that you, How had God done this in the past? He had never liked this, but He had friends, prophets, who would speak His Word so that Moses would stand up and tell you, David, this is what God says. So that Elijah would call down fire and stand in for God or stand up and be the spokesperson for God. What was the problem with all of those people, though? They were weakened. They were weakened by sin, just like you and I were. They were born in an ordinary way. So God had His Word become flesh. What we couldn't accomplish, He did accomplish. Before we leave Colossians in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, and I can just read this to you if you want. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, I know you've heard from Sunday school all of these things like Jesus is 100% man and he's 100% God and frankly, none of that ever made any sense to me. It's like when an athlete stands up and says he gives 110%. How do you do that? You know, you, 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 know, you either gave the 100% or you didn't, but 100 is pretty well all you have to give. The only way I can reconcile this is that just what the Bible says is true. God wanted to make Himself known to people and He chose the package to do it in as a man named Jesus. It had been promised 4,000 years before the cross to a woman named Eve. said, your seed, your seed will crush the head of the enemy. Your seed. Why her seed, not their seed? The Bible teaches that the sin nature travels through, through a man. You know, it says that uh, Adam's father was God, while Cain's father, or Seth's father, or Abel's father, was Adam. Adam was made in God's image, but whose image were Adam's children in? His. And the Bible's very clear about that. In other words, Adam was created as a pristine, clear, uh, free of sin human being, but he was tainted, and when he had children, they were tainted. Now, I don't know why it works through the male, you know. You wouldn't have enough burdens to deal with. I guess the Bible just teaches this as, as a male thing. I have no idea. And I'm not sure that this is something literally. It's just I noticed that in Genesis, it's spoken of the seed of the woman. It has nothing to do with a man. And in fact, there was no man that participated in bringing Jesus to the earth. That's why the Bible goes through such great extent to show virgin birth. Because Jesus' father was God. And he had no sin nature. So this human being could be the perfect expression of God. 
Uh, I've had some really deep discussions with close friends and relatives here lately about could Jesus have failed? Certainly he could have. He didn't, but certainly he could have. Was Jesus ever tempted? Most certainly he was. I mean, the Bible goes through great lengths to let you know in every way he was tempted and yet found without sin. Wouldn't have been much of a story if the, the end was just stamped in stone, huh? No, there had to be some chance for him to fail. And yet he didn't. Now, the first guy was placed in a garden and it was pristine and beautiful and he blew it. The second guy was tempted in the desert without food for, for 40 days and he succeeded. You know, The first guy was given freedom to eat everything he wanted in a helpmate. The second guy had no, uh, no place to lay his head. No, not, not even shelter like the birds of the air and the foxes, he said. You know, and yet he succeeded. Turn with me back to John and we are going to, uh, to close here in just a second. Those of you that have taken some notes, the name John means Yahweh is gracious. The mission statement for writing the book of John, John the Beloved, was in John 20, verse 31. And it was, I'm writing these miracles down so that you'll know Jesus was the Son of God and that by knowing that or believing that, you will find life. We found out that John was in his early 20s when Jesus was on the earth and that he died under Trajan. I forgot to tell you that Trajan came into power around AD 98. So if John was in his 20s around Jesus' uh, earthly ministry and then he died somewhere under Trajan around 100, it lets you know that John died somewhere between 90 and 100 years old. Right? John was the brother of James. James and John were considered to be two of the pillars in the early church. His early childhood or early uh, ministry start, he was called a son of thunder. And yet, when he went down in history, he went down as the apostle of love. John was the only one at the trial, the only one at the cross, and the only one personally known to the high priest. So his family was of some standing. John was the one who was entrusted to take care of Mary. And John wrote a book to the entire world. And he even wrote it in Roman time. And you're going to find out later, he explains Jewish customs unlike any of the others do. He'll even explain Jesus' words, which I love. They're in parentheses in our English Bibles. Jesus will stand up in John 7.37 and say, uh, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. Right? And you think, well, that's good, Jesus. How do we do that? John puts in parentheses for us right there. By this, he meant the Holy Spirit who had not yet fallen on any of them. And I'm so glad. And everybody seems to have understood that except our modern theologians today who have written that out of the Bible. Now, John does things like that. We're going to study the book of John because it's good. But tonight, what I want you to come away with, and we're closing right now, is that the whole idea of Jesus coming to the earth according to John was to make the Father understandable, comprehensible, seeable to you. And the way that He did that was by packaging Himself in a human being. This is no different than not being able to see the oceans, so you set up an aquarium. You know, it's no different than not being able to comprehend that huge fresco, so you put a mirror. Jesus is the reflection of God. He's the image of God. Jesus the man is declared to be God, but He's he was a man who was the image of God. Now, I know that, that seems complicated, but it will make more and more sense and better than that as we close. 
It sheds light on everything that you're going to read from here on out. If you feel a little bit lost, that's okay. Come back next week because this theme of life and making the Father known are throughout the book of John and you will see it in every chapter. It's how Jesus deals with everybody. He says, hey, I came to bring you life. And we read right over that and think about going to heaven. That was never Jesus' mission statement. He said, I came to give you life. And Hebrews starts it the same way, by the way, and even gets to a point and says, look, if he did all this, why don't we see it? And he explains it. And we will explain it too. So y'all stand up and we'll pray.